My name is David Leslie, and as the Executive Director of the Rothko Chapel, it is my privilege to welcome you to the chapel in the kickoff of the chapel's 50th anniversary weekend. It is rather serendipitous that this weekend, February 26th through 28th, 2021, corresponds to the exact dates 50 years ago when the Rothko Chapel, as well as the Broken Obelisk, was consecrated and dedicated to service to the community in the spirit of the highest aspirations of humankind. While the programs this weekend do not attempt to copy or repeat the worship services and public dedicatory events that occurred February 26 to 28, 1971, they have been planned in the spirit of the expectations and hopes for the chapel embedded in the imagination and souls of the founders, John and Dominic D. Manil, artists Mark Rothko and Barnett Newman, architects Philip Johnson, Howard Barnstone, and Gene Aubrey, and all who were supportive of this magnificent institution and movement. Over the last 50 years, interest in and engagement with the chapel has grown exponentially. On a regular year, that would be a non-COVID-19 year, more than 100,000 people from over 100 countries find their way to the chapel for renewal, respite, and inspiration. In addition, the work and struggle for justice and equity continue to be central to the chapel's mission. As Dominique de Menil made clear, the chapel upholds, and I quote, a double vocation, a vocation of hospitality and a vocation of denouncing all forms of imperialism, whether political, economic, social, or intellectual, close quote. This commitment to human rights has inspired and led the chapel to engage critical and existential issues such as climate change, mass incarceration, torture and war, gender and sexual abuse and violence, income inequality, as well as immigration and the forced migration of people. Our program and ongoing community engagement affirm the importance of spiritual exploration and interfaith and intercommunity dialogue and understanding, mindful of the importance of discovering not only what we share in common, but how to constructively address the differences that define us as unique people and communities. So for the last 50 years, the chapel community has faithfully stewarded these expansive and transformative ideals, not only for its own time, but for the future. Tonight and over the next few days and key moments into next year, we turn our attention to the intersection of the past, present, and future found at the Rothko Chapel. Our program tonight, titled Rothko Chapel and the Journey of its Restoration, is placed within the context of our Opening Spaces Master Plan Development and Campaign, which second only to the preparation for and opening of the chapel in 1971, is the most monumental project in recent times as we prepare for the chapel's next 50 years. To help you better understand the goals of Opening Spaces within the context of the 50th anniversary, I want to share this short video with you.
The genesis of the Opening Spaces campaign was really a decade or more ago when the board here was really wrestling with a couple of issues. One is restoring the chapel as close as we could back to the original tent. The other part of it was the numbers of visitors have been growing exponentially and how do we open up physically the space around the chapel to better accommodate uh, guests and visitors. We're very eager to embrace more visitors, but in a way that allows us to keep the chapel a place of quiet and reflection. First thing that we're really interested in is restoring the skylight. We've removed the umbrella that blocked the skylight before, reconnecting us to the outside world. We have a sense of a soft light that bathes the walls rather than the harsh light that used to bounce around the chapel. You really get the sense that this engagement with the art was engagement with the elements and where you are at the moment, both physically, as well as maybe mentally, spiritually, psychologically, existentially. Opening Spaces has also brought a new artificial lighting system to the chapel, which will be used at nighttime and during low light conditions. We've removed the glass partitions placed in the chapel foyer. This has allowed us to make it a space that is much more inviting, much more open. It really does say you are in a new type of space. Slow down and then enter in as, as you feel ready. We're thrilled that the Suzanne Deal Booth Welcome House is now ready. Our gift shop bookstore is here now, lockers for visitors. The Visitor Welcome House opens up the chapel for that meditative, pretty much unencumbered uh, visit. The other part that's very important is the enhancements we did landscaping-wise. You have hundreds of new trees, a new surrounding for the broken obelisk. We've removed the bamboo and replaced it with a holly, which really has opened up that meditative space around the pool and on the grounds. And this is very, very important for this neighborhood that becomes more dense, more people, more cars, more vehicles, to be able to have that space of, of silence and meditation. The new program center, this is a 5,300 square foot building that provides a large open space that's extremely flexible and configurable so that we can do film and live stream presentations. We'll be able to do dance and movement programs. We'll be able to have community gatherings. It really takes over a lot of the programmatic function that the chapel has served to this point. We wanted to be able to protect the sanctity of the chapel, where the chapel really is the place of the spiritual, the existential, but then having the program center to really look at how do you organize, how do you bring people together across sectors. The second phase will include a new administration and archives building. This will be the first time that we'll really have had adequate space for the chapel staff. The building also has two new conference rooms. As part of this building, we will be able to make our archives public for the first time. The two bungalows that are currently used for our archives and our offices will be removed, and then that space will be opened up for a new meditative garden. 
The entire opening space this project is a $30 million project. We were very, very fortunate early on to have really strong foundation support. And a number of individuals have made major gifts to the campaign, including Lynn Wyatt, who made a significant gift to do the lighting transformation that we anticipated, and Suzanne Deal Booth, who made an amazing gift to be able to help build the Welcome House. As we sit here today, we're halfway through the campaign. We've raised just under $16 million and are beginning now for the second half. The invitation is still there uh, to give and to give generously to the Opening Spaces campaign. I mean, central to the founders was this idea that there was a credible need for both exploration and dialogue. And I think the Opening Spaces campaign is really trying to investigate how do we keep that mission alive and how do we continue to grow it. Now, before I introduce tonight's program, there are a number of acknowledgments that are in order as putting together this weekend's programs, as well as other 50th anniversary events throughout the year, is a true community effort. I want to start by giving thanks to our individual and institutional donors who are generously supporting the chapel's 50th anniversary. In addition, deepest appreciation to our programming and technical team, especially Ashley Clemmer, Kelly Johnson, and Ben Doyle. Special thanks to everyone who is contributing their gifts to wisdom and presence on tonight and tomorrow's panels, as well as the interface service and community celebration on Sunday afternoon. And finally, to the planning teams of staff and volunteers who have developed an inspirational series of 50th anniversary programs that honor the chapel's past, lift up our current commitments and help us prepare for the future. Thank you so much for sharing your time, creative energy, and commitments. And now to tonight's program. It's an honor to present our moderator for this evening's panel, Carol Mancusi-Ungaro, who will introduce each of the panelists. Carol is the Melva Buxbaum Associate Director for Conservation and Research at the Whitney Museum of Art and she is a former member of the Rothko Chapel Board of Directors and Site Development Committee. For 19 years, Carol served as the Chief Conservator of the Minot Collection, and while there was responsible for the conservation of the Rothko paintings inside the chapel. She is a writer and a lecturer, an award-winning conservator who is intimately knowledgeable of the history and development of the Rothko Chapel, and I can think of no better moderator for this evening's conversation. Carol, on behalf of everyone at the Rothko Chapel, thank you so much for your friendship, your love for and many contributions to the chapel, helping to maintain and further the mission of this unique and transformative sacred space. Thank you, David, for the introduction. I appreciate your recognition, but I must admit in full disclosure, that I did not participate in any of the final design decisions that have resulted in the current restoration of the chapel and its grounds. I, like many of attendees tonight, have not seen the achievement. And so we look forward to hearing from those who have brought it to fruition. But first, let's step back in time and take a look at the historical context of the chapel. 
First slide, please. Precisely 50 years ago tonight, February 26, 1971, Dominique de Menil stood before invited guests on the eve of the opening of the Rothko Chapel. In her inaugural address to the people of Houston, she said the following, I'm supposed to talk about the paintings of Mark Rothko, but I don't think I can explain them. I don't think what I say or anyone says is the last word. Every work of art establishes its own base for criticism. Every work of art creates the climate in which it can be understood. Next slide, please. We are told by Dominique de Menil that in the spring of 1964, my husband and I offered Rothko the opportunity to create paintings for a chapel. Right away, he said yes, he would do it. He had reached the limit of what he could do with single paintings. He wanted to expand his vision and combine a number of paintings, relating each one to all the others. He became a recluse. He worked with one, then two assistants, stretching huge canvases, placing them on the mocked up scaffolding, then discarding them and painting new ones. At times he just sat in front of his paintings, looking at them, brooding, thinking while he listened to recordings of Bach or Mozart." End of quote. Next slide, please. Rothko completed the paintings in the spring of 1967. Not unlike other artists I have researched, Rothko had a formal photograph taken of himself, dressed up in the presence of his completed work. Here you see him in a portal between two paintings. Again, in the words of Dominique de Menil, Rothko wanted to bring his paintings to the poignancy of which they were capable. He wanted them to be intimate and timeless. Indeed, they are intimate and timeless. They embrace us without enclosing us. Their dark surfaces do not stop the gaze. A light surface is active, it stops the eye, but we can gaze right through these purplish browns, gaze into the infinite. Upon completion, the canvases were placed in storage in New York, awaiting the construction of the chapel in Houston. Next slide, please. The paintings arrived in Houston on a very windy day, but had to await a calming of the wind before they were hoisted into the new construction the next day. Next slide, please. They came in through the skylight. The exterior walls were not large enough to accommodate them, and they were installed in the eight interior walls. Next slide, please. Contemporary accounts describe a descent of light through the skylight into the center of the space, relegating the paintings and supportive walls to darkness. In an attempt to mitigate that effect, a cloth scrim was placed across the opening, as you see on the image on the right. Next slide, please. However, the painting still remained in darkness. Subsequent attempts to direct the light to the walls led to the design of a baffle that you see on the right that introduced a new element that now hovered over the space. You will be hearing more about these attempts at light mitigation and the ensuing problems from our panelists. Next slide, please. Of course, the Rothko Chapel is a, as a work of art is both the paintings and the space in which they are installed. It is a closely entwined environment, holistic experience, 
that pulls on us to look within as there are no stained glass windows or icons to divert our attention. Indeed, as the donor insightfully perceived, when the Romans conquered Jerusalem and forced their way into the temple, they were very surprised to find nothing in the Holy of Holies. The Rothko Chapel provides the same kind of dialectical tension, nothing and everything. Concretely speaking, there is nothing there but stretched cotton duck soaked with a mixture of alizarin crimson and black. But aesthetically speaking, there is one of the most daring endeavors ever undertaken to express the infinite with a finite. This is a kind of tightrope walking, but isn't every great work of art tightrope walking? Let's now turn to the experts who've been doing their own kind of tightrope walking during the years of this project. Adam Yorinsky is principal of Architectural Research Office, ARO, in New York, a New York City firm dedicated to architecture that unites strategy and intelligence with beauty and form. ARO's diverse body of work has received widespread recognition, including the 2020 American Institute of Architects Firm Award and the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. Adam has taught and lectured across the United States. He's also written about the firm's work. Adam holds an undergraduate degree in architecture from the University of Virginia and a master of architecture from Princeton University. It's great to be with you, Adam. George Sexton. Hi, George. Hi, Carol. In 1980, George Sexton established George Sexton Associates, an office dedicated to providing consulting services in the areas of lighting design and museum design and planning services. Mr. Sexton earned a degree in architecture from the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. Prior to forming his own firm, he worked as a lighting designer for Cloud Angle as a museum specialist for the National Gallery of Art as acting director for the Sainsbury Center for Visual Arts in England, and as chief exhibitions designer and head of design with the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Carol. Um, Thomas L. Wiltz was educated at the University of Virginia and holds master's degrees in landscape, architecture, and architecture. As owner and principal of Nelson Beard Waltz Landscape Architects, NBW, Waltz has infused narratives of the land into the places where people live, work, and play, deepening connections between people and the natural world and inspiring environmental stewardship. He was named Design Innovator of the Year by the Wall Street Journal in 2016 and one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company in 2017. Thank you all for being here. It's nice to see you. Great to be here. Thanks, Carol. Good. Okay, let's begin by contextualizing the architectural challenges and their solutions. Adam, do you want to start? Absolutely. Thanks, Carol. Well, first of all, it's really gratifying to participate today. And I want to emphasize that this was a highly collaborative process with uh, the building committee, the Rothko Chapel board, 
uh, and of course, Thomas and George and other collaborators on the team. So um, the completed project and what we envision for the next phase is really a testimony to everyone's great efforts on that part. Um, I'd like to go to the first image, please. So as um, Carol, as you described, uh, the Rothko Chapel was really the product of an amazingly fruitful collaboration between patrons and artists, between the Dimineals and Mark Rothko. And we began our master planning process uh, really with a deep dive into the history and the legacy and the mission of the chapel um, to create a design that would have integrity to support the authentic experience of this very unique place. And we were fortunate to participate in a board retreat to meet many, many occasions with the building committee uh, and um, interview past directors of the um, Rothko Chapel uh, and those who were involved in its founding, like Helen, Wink Helen Winkler. Um, so it was really a great uh, part of our process. Next, please. Um, the Dimineals commissioned Rothko, as we know, to achieve what he'd long sought to do, which was to create a place that would touch um, our deepest emotions. And one of the things we were fortunate to do as part of our process was visit Mark Rothko's, what had been Mark Rothko's studio space in Manhattan, uh, where he painted the uh, panels for the chapel itself as part of our research. Next, please. We also uh, used the chapel's archive to understand how the building and the design evolved through the initial collaboration of Philip Johnson and Mark Rothko. Um, and of course, ultimately, Rothko's vision of a non-monumental, modest building in which the paintings shape an octagonal space uh, and, and are open to the sky above is what prevailed over Johnson's vision, which was for a more monumental structure um, that would be elevated uh, above uh, the ground plane. Next, please. Central to the experience of this place, of course, is the quality of daylight. But uh, unfortunately, Rothko's intent, as Carol described, was never fully realized. And so um, there were a history of renovations of the chapel sanctuary and skylight over preceding decades. And um, our really one of our charges in restoring the sense of awe to the chapel was to um, uh, return back to Rothko's original intent. So this was less a restoration of the daylighting in the space than it was a, a re return to his intent. Next, please. As powerful as the interior experience of the chapel is, one of the things that's really notable is the direct relationship that the building has to the surrounding res residential neighborhood. And this directness was really central to the Dimineal's vision uh, to uh, situate the sacred in the context of the everyday and to carve out a space for um, this experience. Um, not apart from our lives, but as part of our daily lives. Next, please. However, in the intervening decades since the chapel was completed, the neighborhood has changed and grown. Of course, the Menil collection has expanded over time. The University of St. Thomas to the east of the chapel site has expanded over time. And there's continued development along West Alabama Street to the north. And so one of the things we realized uh, was that there was a need for the chapel to begin to define boundaries uh, or borders around its property, which you see highlighted in this image, but that these be porous and that the, it, the experience of the chapel and its grounds remain accessible, um, but that the quality of this experience and the sanctity of the chapel grounds was being compromised by the encroaching changes around the site. Next, please. 
Another key driver of the um, master planning was to understand how the expanded programming that the chapel uh, has undertaken in recent years and also its growth in visitorship puts stresses on the uh, existing building and grounds. And the chapel, of course, has amazing programs that are integral to um, its mission. And so how could the um, new architecture and the design of the planning for the project support this? Next, please. What we learned fundamentally, and we created this diagram on the uh, left to explain this, was that the chapel is both a place and a program. And the essence of our work would be to strengthen both uh, these aspects of its mission and also reinforce the relationships between the two. Um, so there's this notion of contemplation, which occurs within the chapel itself and underlies the renovation of the building. And it's really about designing an experience that happens over time from the scale of the neighborhood to the interior of the chapel. And then this space of action, creating a place and space for expanded programming in the service of social justice, represented by Barnett Newman's uh, broken obelisk sculpture, which is dedicated to Martin Luther King, and the plaza that surrounds it, um, which is a place of gathering. Next, please. We developed a set of guiding principles to think holistically about um, improving the quality of the experience of the visitor from the biggest possible frame of the neighborhood all the way down to uh, the smallest details within the building to be stewards of the facilities for the chapel, to create new spaces that would support expanded program mission, the um, meeting space uh, that I'll be talking about later in the, in the presentation. And also, and very specifically to respect the relationship between the found and designed elements on the site. There's a very careful calibration of design in the context of this neighborhood that is unique to the chapel. Uh, the next, please. So what came out of this process was a master plan which reframes the chapel within a new landscape, which Thomas will be talking about, um, and also new buildings in a new North Campus that supports the chapel's expanded programming and mission, but still respects this binary relationship between the chapel and Broken Obelisk uh, on the existing uh, chapel grounds. Next, please. And we thought about the, the renovation of the chapel building itself, what encompassed everything from a new roof to the new skylight to the lighting, which uh, daylighting, which George will be talking about in more detail, to acoustics, to the structural reinforcement of the building, really uh, making the building more resilient in the event of a flood and uh, improving its um, every aspect, as I said, of the visitor's experience and this temporal experience over time. Next, please. George will be focusing on the skylight, but just wanted to mention that there were a number of full-size mock-ups to study these qualities, uh, which were quite ephemeral, um, and to gain knowledge from them to uh, finalize the design. And we worked very closely with the contractor, the construction manager, Lindbeck, and also in the case of the skylight with Lionel, uh, who provided design assist services and also fabrication of the skylight. Next, please. Acoustics are really important in the space, and we worked with Threshold Acoustics, our collaborator and acoustical consultant on how to uh, calibrate the, the sound within the chapel so that this experience could be um, uh, as natural as possible and to eliminate certain sounds that had been uh, uh, permeated into the space from either HVAC equipment or exterior noise. Next, please. And a, a key aspect of our work was re 
working the existing vestibule, the glazed vestibule that was in place just before we started our project had been put in uh, about 20 years ago and was an attempt to um, create acoustical and um, uh, uh, environmental separation between inside and outside, but it, but it resulted in glass panels that enclosed that area and diminished the flow and sequence of space into the chapel itself. So we created a new vestibule um, within the existing building and then opened up this foyer space so that it could be a place of transition and arrival into the chapel. Next, please. Uh, one thing we discovered when we did the demolition of the plaster inside the and the ceiling inside the chapel was that the existing concrete block walls had cracking and they hadn't been reinforced when they were built originally. And so um, a campaign was undertaken to reinforce all of this concrete block um, to strengthen the walls so that they would um, withstand uh, hurricane force winds and really form a much stronger um, structure going forward in the future. Next, please. But as, as Carol mentioned, the success uh, measure of our success is really the extent to which our presence is effaced in the completed project. Um, this openness and connection to the sky and the dynamic qualities of light are really intrinsic to the unique experience of the chapel. Next. A key component of this first phase of work is a welcome house, which is a place of orientation that has the reception desk that was formerly in the foyer of the chapel and kind of diminished that transition to the sanctuary space. Uh, it also has a gift shop, restrooms, lockers, and a small exhibition area. Next. And this building is the first component of the New North Campus. It's porch-like in scale and has a, a very large covered waiting area and a place for gathering, uh, but is fundamentally open to views uh, inside, to the inside, but also from within to the other buildings on the chapel grounds. Next, please. And it's really a waypoint along the journey to and from the chapel place, as I said, of transition and orientation and part of an ensemble, which you can see clearly here between the chapel and then the broken obelisk beyond. I'd like to pass this on to George now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. I was thrilled to be approached by Christopher and Carol early on in the project to be considered for the lighting of the Rothko Chapel and to join the team. I first saw the chapel in the 1980s and was aware at that time of some of the lighting challenges that were both conservation related and aesthetic concerns. I'd like to share some of those images of our process and how we responded to those concerns. First slide, please. The image on the left is a dusk shot of the original installation uh, around the 1970s. You can see the full height of the space, the skylight, and the artificial illumination is quite apparent. What is not obvious is the full intensity and glare of daylight you would have in the middle of a bright Texas day. You could see the space as it was originally intended to be viewed. The image on the right is a version just before the current redesign of the lighting. This iteration solved many of the conservation concerns and concealed the glare of the skylight with some side effects. It changed the proportions of the space and sent raking light across the ceiling and in relation to the space, the lighting of the paintings seems subdued. Next slide, please. On several of my visits to the chapel, I studied the entire lighting experience. 
I realized because of the way our eyes adapt, the experience of the lighting of the chapel really begins outside. The image on the left is before the renovation. One is aware of the bright daylight, the brightness of the plaza, and the lack of shade approaching the entry. We wanted to reduce perception of brightness and the effects of glare to soften the transition from the outside to the inside. The diagram on the top right illustrates our first concept and in many ways guided our process throughout the project. We wanted to add shade. The new landscape design is brilliantly arranged to do that. We wanted to reduce the brightness of the plaza with a darker material. We were able to do that. We also had a wild thought, add louvers at the entry. That was appropriately rejected. We also wanted to increase visitor time in the vestibule. That is also part of the experience. All of these incremental changes allows time for the eye to adjust and adapt to the low light levels in the chapel. So when one arrives at the chapel interior, the eye is more prepared to appreciate the paintings and the space. The diagram at the bottom right indicates the skylight with a custom louver to direct light to the paintings. Next slide, please. As a lighting design office, we do a lot of work for art museums and galleries. Our experience informs what we do. These slides indicate relevant experience with custom louvers to manage and direct light. They were good precedents and indicated that it was possible to achieve our design intent for the chapel. The Brandywine River Museum, top left, is a similar solution to what we developed for the chapel. Here we direct light through a louver system above the glass to light watercolors by Jamie Wyeth for a permanent collection. Control of light levels was important, as it is in the chapel. The Wadsworth Museum, lower left, and the Rubens Gallery in the Ringing Museum, lower right, were architectural solutions to manage light and create an ambiance with daylight to view art in an architectural setting. The Star Spangled Banner in the upper right uses the same artificial lighting technology we employed at the chapel. More about that in a minute. Next slide, please. For the previous projects, we built large scale models to study our daylighting proposals. We felt it was also important to do the same for the chapel. The photos are of a large model at dollhouse scale, one inch to one foot. The model is big enough to allow one to stick your head from below through the floor of the model and actually see and feel the light in the space. We also use the model with our computer calculations to test our technical assumptions and the performance of the systems. It was also a great tool to communicate to the team the design intent. In the lower left, you can see a top view of the louvers. Working closely with ARO, we use the model to choose finishes and paint colors for the ceiling and the collar around the skylight. Next slide, please. The image on the left shows how the louvers in the skylight direct light to the walls, keeping light off the ceiling and providing ambient light for the space. The top drawing on the right shows the full skylight assembly. The bottom layer is a trans parent scrim layer to soften and obscure images in the view of the louvers from below. The louvers are next. Each louver is different and sized and angled to direct light. Each louver is painted white on the top to bounce light to the wall and on the bottom, each louver, louver is painted dark gray to reduce its visual brightness. 
At the top, the white diffusing glass diffuses the light and eliminates direct sunlight from entering the space. Next slide, please. This image shows how we've added supplemental artificial light. Normally, the chapel is solely illuminated by daylight. During dark conditions due to weather, time of day, seasonal changes, and evening open hours, we have introduced artificial lighting. The lighting is activated through photosensors. We are using the same technique that we used for the Star Spangled Banner images at the bottom left. Employing video projectors, we are able to precisely map and shape the light for the walls and the paintings. We can also control the amount of light on the wall and separately on the paintings. The drawing on the right shows that the projector is mounted vertically in the collar and reflects off a small mirror onto the walls and paintings. Next slide, please. The final image shows the before and after. By removing the baffle, we return the space to its original proportions. We direct light precisely to the walls, reducing the spill on the ceiling and adding a general ambient light to the room. You can see the mirrors for the projectors at the bottom of the collar that direct light from the projectors to the walls and paintings. That brings me to the end of my presentation of our process, and I'm happy to pass the presentation off to Thomas. Thank you very much, George. I appreciate that. For all of us who have visited this incredible assembly of paintings, it is a deeply emotional and reverent experience. Being tasked with ways to allow that reverence to reverberate through the landscape and ultimately connect to a North Campus across the street was a daunting task, but an exciting design challenge. And as Adam mentioned, one that was only achieved through deep collaboration between the disciplines on our team. Uh, first slide, please. When Nelson Bird Wolds Landscape Architects was invited to join this team, uh, we were stepping into a process where a substantial amount of master planning had been done. Um, and we, we wanted to uh, chart the path for how this experience of going to the chapel is expanded through the arrival and the departure and how the landscape can hold you in each of that of those moments and extend and expand, enrich and deepen your experience. Next slide, please. We took the diagram that Adam had shown previously um, and expanded it further to this idea of arrival at the welcome house, preparation, that perhaps there's a garden space that prepares your eyes, as George described, your mind and your body for what you're about to see. Then of course the chapel as the central experience and then another landscape space that allows the reflection, uh, the sort of contemplation of what you have seen with the Barnett Newman and the Rothko paintings. And of course, following the mission of Rothko Chapel is to inspire people ultimately to action within their world. Next slide. One of the things that is most exciting about this project um, is to really transform the, uh, the siting of the chapel 
without moving or touching the chapel. So in this uh, slide of the context of the neighborhood, the lighter buildings are the ones owned by Rothko Chapel. And of course, the ones on the left um, really obscure the potential for the chapel to read as a chapel in a garden. So by removing those and developing that site as the preparatory garden, we can achieve these goals um, of the, of the uh, expanded experience of the paintings. Next, please. This is uh, a drawing of the phase one that we are celebrating tonight, um, this tremendous achievement and first essential step. So it is somewhat out of sequence with the order of the experience that is the ultimate design, but this garden for contemplation, the garden that holds you when you come out of the chapel is the one to the right of the drawing. And what we developed were a series of long bands of multi-stemmed river birch that make a sort of uh, shifting filtered screen for people to find solace, find some degree of privacy while not walling off the site. It was uh, a very important tenant from the beginning of the project that the site remained permeable to the outside. So these long bands of river birch create a series of shifting garden rooms uh, with benches uh, scattered throughout where you can sit either face-to-face -face as a small group or in solitary meditation. We also replaced the unwieldy bamboo hedge uh, with a fastidious holly uh, shrub that uh, can be sheared into this L-shaped hedge, uh, returning that uh, very important angle um, to, the, to the context for the Barnett Newman. We also replaced all of the concrete around the pool um, just exactly as it was. So next slide, please. Um, this is what I will uh, come back to in a few minutes that shows with the removal of the cottages to the west, we have the opportunity for this preparatory garden and the direct link to the Welcome House and the North Campus. Next, please. Here are the names of the different spaces. And one that I did want to mention uh, is the gathering lawn to the east of the Barnett Newman and Reflecting Pool is absolutely essential to the programming and functioning uh, of, the, of the project today and in the future. So here you see the welcome house, the journey to the chapel around Broken Obelisk, and then into the birch rooms and the gathering lawn, lawn at the end of your visit. Next, please. I thought I'd just wrap up with a few uh, dramatic construction shots. Uh, this one is uh, uh, shocking to, to see, um, but we, uh, we had to replace uh, and we did great uh, research to carefully match the color and texture of the, of the pebbly concrete that was around the pool. Um, had to replace it, regrade the lawn, and prepare for the birch hedges. So the next slide is much more reassuring, please. Um, seeing the sod in place and these long lines of birch that are these kind of ephemeral uh, screens creating space. You can also see the bamboo hedge replaced uh, with the fastigid holly that will continue to be trimmed into a continuous line with benches at the pool site and along the, um, the hedges. Next, please. 
and this gives you that sense of being tucked in, but still tremendous visibility to the street. So you have a moment of, of, of private retreat, but the minute you advance, you are ready for action and participating in the life of your city once more. Great. The next slide is the closing slide that gives you uh, the sense that you have today at the uh, completion of this exciting phase one of, as Adam uh, showed the slide by day, I'll show it by night, where you really get this oblique to broken obelisk and to the chapel um, with great things to come. So I'll turn it back over to Carol. Great, thank you. <clears throat> okay, let's, here we are. Thank you all for your uh, discussions about your responses to the problems. Your work has resulted, I know, from lots of thought and discussion among you. Um, and I'm very happy to have this opportunity to ask you some questions about the experience. So I'm very interested in how you came to some of the decisions. So um, Adam, I'm gonna start by asking you a question and see where that goes. Um, in our discussions, uh, we pointed out that your work is really not unlike that of art conservators, what I do, in a sense that the best work we do is invisible. Um, the viewer has no imposing sense of what has been done. Uh, you have written that quote, ultimately everything is shaped by our judgment we seek a reciprocity between the existing and new architecture, a complex layering that balances deference and distinction. I'm really interested in your use of the words deference and distinction and wondered if you could talk about that a little with regard to the Rothko Chapel and maybe other of your commissions. Sure, I mean, um, one can't but approach a project like this with a deep sense of humility because the aspirations of the Nemanils as patrons and uh, of Mark Rothko as an artist are so high. And so the very first thing you know that we did as a team and my partner, Stephen Cassell and I, and Neil Patel, our project director and Alyssa, our um, project manager, was really uh, pull back and try to understand the context that we were working in, the physical and social context and have real humility about you know, what we understood and what we needed to learn before we started to design for the site. Um, one of the ways we entered in the project, a prior project we had completed was the restoration of Donald Judd's studio and home mm -hmm. in New York City, which was completed in uh, 2013. And that was in many respects similar to this project with respect to um, architecture being in the service of vision of an artist. Uh, in the case of Judd, it was the place where he created, you know, uh, permanently installed work. Um, and in the case of, of course, Rothko Chapel, we've, we've explained that. So um, we had been familiar with sort of skills and the need, uh, the necessity to work in this manner. But, um, and we used to say that, I used to say that the, the Judge Foundation project was a once in a lifetime project. Well, the Rothko Chapel was another <laughs> bite at the apple. So, um, yeah, so I mean, I think what we think about is, you know, who is, what is the architecture for and who is it for? And what is it in the service of? And in this case, it's in the service of relationships that are quite deep, both within the chapel building itself and then a larger site and social relationships of the community beyond. And so that's really what drove, drove our process. And that's what we feel the architecture should be deferential to and in support of. And there are aspects which I'll talk about later about the next phase, 
specific to the kind of character of the architecture and how we did that. Okay. Yeah, um, working uh, on art or working with artists is always a challenge, uh, working with the sensitivity and intuitiveness that one has to appreciate. And that certainly was true with the lighting, George. I mean, that lighting has been so uh, such a predominant issue from the chapel from the very beginning, uh, not with no filtration and then glare and then brightness and iterations on the design and all those things that you had to come to deal with. So I'm kind of interested in a question with regard to maybe some insights that you gleaned along the way. Were there any surprises for you as you were developing a lighting solution? Um, there were, I think for me, the end result was a surprise, um, a, a glorious surprise for me. I mean, I had seen the paintings um, through you know, many visits to the Menil and, and to the chapel. Um, we were are certainly aware of all the problems and you know, that, that experience of viewing art can be, uh, if you're distracted uh, by light or space or other other parameters that, that can affect what you see and as we, you know we worked you know closely with arrow we worked closely with thomas um and I, and it was to me a, a way of stripping all the extraneous away from that experience and leaving the space pure and when you know when we developed the louvre system which is something that we had you know i first started working with in the early 1980s um you know, I knew that it would be a, uh, an appropriate device to use, but it was very surprising for me at the, at the end to look at the paintings for the first time and r really seeing uh, that that term that you use, the infinite in the in the, in the finite. I mean, it was uh, amazing to see the depth and uh, richness in the paintings that that I hadn't really seen before, and that was very unexpected to me. Mm. Well, I would love to claim those terms, but they were actually Dominique de Manil, so. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, I would imagine um, when you install something like this, there are probably adjustments that have to be done along the way. And I know we've all been restricted in our homes and our home states because of the pandemic, but I was wondering, did you have to make adjustments? Have you gone back and forth? Have you had to do anything of that sort? Uh, I, I've actually been to site many times, uh, and it was really necessary to to adjust and tune the artificial lighting. And we spent uh, three or four sessions over a couple of days each session to adjust the mirrors, to adjust the projectors, to map the light on the walls, map the light on the paintings. So, uh, and I, and that would have been impossible to do uh, remotely. But, uh, and it, I mean, traveling was challenging, but it was necessary. I guess coming to those um, decisions of when you've got it right in your mind is a judgment based on your experience. I mean, that must have been uh, exhilarating and kind of humbling in a way. Well, the whole, the whole experience from start, uh, from the very start when I met you and Christopher uh, at the beginning, it's been uh, a very humbling experience and it's been, and amazing uh, to be part of such a, a talented team, both on the client side and, and on the, the design side. I've learned a lot from Thomas and, and uh, Stephen and, and Adam. And so it, it's been a great experience. Okay. Feeling is mutual. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, now, Thomas, we need, to, we need to go outside of the chapel because <laughs> the outside affected what was inside. Um, 
Barnett Newman's broken obelisk is obviously a key element of the Chapitol experience, and we've talked about this. Um, how did you personally come to terms with that and navigating the balance between the broken obelisk and the chapel, not just physically, but metaphysically? Um, I, I think it helps that they are two very almost opposite energies, one that is absorbing light and the portal to the infinite, as we've discussed, and the other that is a very an absolutely monumental object radiating light and power and energy. So there's an absorption on one end and an, uh, and an exuding of force on the other. And I think that helped set the tone for the two gardens that are the cross axis of these filtered bands of, of birch trees. And then the other that is an enclosed uh, uh, shade garden that will be part of phase two that is the preparatory garden. So in a way, the cross axis of landscape spaces um, seek to resonate with this axial energy of these two sort of powerful but almost opposite tones. Um, I think the body has uh, many, many abilities to sense the landscape in ways that we may or may not have names for or words for, but things like the modulation of light, the sound and texture of what is beneath your feet, the scale of the space, um, we are perceiving so many things when we're in nature. It's our very deepest um, programming to do that. And through the dialogue with Lainey McKinnon and Ian Brennick, the two uh, folks from my office that helped lead the landscape project, we really tried to imagine every bit of that physical and emotional experience of the landscape as a resonance with these powerful forces that you described, Carol. Mm-hmm. You spoke about someone visiting the chapel and having the experience, uh, and it seemed very appropriate to it. It seemed to have affected you in your thinking about this. Oh, yes. Um, I'll I'll share that story of of one of my very closest friends grew up behind the Iron Curtain uh, in Eastern Europe, and. Um, uh, came to the United States as a teenager, became an artist, and had always been uh, uh, quite passionate about Rothko. And I had the the honor, it was just as we had opened our third office in Houston, our, our office in Houston, the third of two others. Uh, and I said, oh, we have to go to the Rothko Chapel. We were very excited to go. And we we went on a very hot Houston day, walked into the chapel, eyes adjusted, time passed, the the spell of the paintings began to sort of reverberate through him. And it was a deeply emotional experience for him, this first confrontation of something he knew so well, but only in images and to be in the presence and feel their power. When we walked outside, it, it was, actually a horrible experience. The searing Houston sun, the burning light, the heat, the no, no place for shelter. There was no place to go and hold oneself emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I think that really set the North Star for what I hoped our firm could bring to this project was to create the sense of sanctuary before and after so that that what 
was in my memory a fairly brutal experience does not happen to people who have come to really um, enjoy and meditate in the presence of this masterpiece. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, yes, those experiences definitely affect our professional judgment mm -hmm. and they enrich them. Mm -hmm. um, this is a general question, but I'm going to start with you, Adam. How did, how did you kind of re-see Houston through the eyes of the chapel? I mean, the Dimonels chose to do the Rothko Chapel in Houston, so there was a real um, intent. And how did you come begin to see the city of Houston through your work with the chapel? It's interesting because probably like most people who haven't been to Houston, you know, we think of it as being a city of freeways and uh, vehicles and, um, you know, a glittering downtown. And so I was pleased to see that a key part of the, uh, of the Dominion's uh, efforts were to um, situate this project in a residential neighborhood that was quite unlike, you know, what I imagined Houston to be like, um, and to um, uh, create a kind of connection between the institutions that they created and the community in a way that was scaled to a human being, both uh, in terms of perception, but also um, kind of uh, quality of just um, communication, if you will, you know, transcending uh, even what you what you experience directly. And so that was something that I was really pleasantly um, surprised to learn about Houston and to understand that that was a key part of, of the work that they'd done. Um, the other part about Houston that I came to understand through the programming that the chapel does is just the, the, the real diversity of the community and the fact that, you know, the Rothko Chapel is what we what we call a global organization. It's global in its aspirations with things like um, the awards that they give and the recognition they give for social justice, but it also is very much rooted in the community through the convening that they do and the um, programming and, and um, relationships they have with other organizations. So that also was um, uh, really interesting to, to learn about and to see that kind of texture of Houston's um, uh, social and cultural life mm -hmm. and how the chapel is woven into that. Mm -hmm. yes, that's absolutely true. Having lived there myself for so long and loved it, it's absolutely true. Um, George, I want to come back to you. And you, In your presentation, you talked about uh, working in museums and how the Rothko Chapel is really not kind of your I mean, you've certainly lit paintings in museums. However, the chapel's not a museum, and it's not a typical house of worship. So, you know, you were not you were not just lighting paintings in a space. Not to say that doing that in a museum is just, but the directive of lighting a painting in a museum is very different, it seems to me, from what you were describing, than the chapel. So, how did you navigate that? I I, I think I was certainly aware through conversations. Uh, amongst the design team and, and, and you, Carol, and, and, and Christopher. Uh, and I think that, that was another reason why the model was so important, because that, that allowed us to test our assumptions, to fine tune how light interacted with the space, that it was, you know, it was more than just lighting the walls and lighting the paintings, but it was also about you know, giving a balance of illumination and ambience to the space and having 
the team, all of you come uh, to the office and go up to the roof and all get our heads in the model and look at look at the uh, the space and have a conversation afterwards uh, was really was really important. And I think that was the model was really the best navigational tool uh, that we had for that process. Yeah, I'm sure of it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that I think about it. My whole life has been, professional life has been spent in museums. But looking at paintings in museum is very different than experiencing the Rothko Chapel paintings. And it's because the paintings in the space are all one. And so you're constantly moving and your eye is constantly moving. And it's the experience of that. And so I, I imagined that that was very central to your challenge with the lighting as you had to keep that movement of our eye going. Yeah, I, I, I think um, it's interesting. I mean, we think of paintings as being two-dimensional, but in fact, uh, the space and paintings of the chapel were in fact very three-dimensional because you are constantly being confronted with the art. Uh, you're, you know, as you move through the space, as you look at one facet or the next. Uh, it, it's a very much a three-dimensional experience. And it's very unlike theater lighting, because theater lighting, you have a stage and you have a audience. And here, you know, we're very much in the space and in the art uh, together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, Thomas, I have to ask you this question. Um, I'm always interested uh, in plants, and I once asked you how you would anticipate the growth of the plants and the landscape design, and you replied to the shock of this initiate, who knows nothing about anything, that you made it opening day because it can have the beauty of a hair transplant. What did you <laughs> Well, <laughs> well, it's... Um, it's one of the challenges of having chosen uh, nature and living things as your lifelong dance partner uh, is that uh, plants grow. And we have, I think, in our contemporary society, a very funny relationship with nature. We either want it to be absolutely frozen and static or we want it to be this abundant wildness. And the reality is that public horticulture is somewhere in between. Um, public parks being the, the bulk of of our professional output, um, you often uh, will design plantings for the very long term, for 20, 30 years. And if you've spaced them properly, it might look a little sparse uh, on opening day. So I usually dread the opening of any of our projects and wish we could just delay it for two or three years, but you never get that luxury. No. Uh, and instead, what we're doing at, at Rothko Chapel is uh, assuring we know the exact mature heights that are required to maintain the sense of openness, of security, but also strategically screening certain things that would distract from the visitor experience. So what we've done is select a, a fastidiate laurel that will be planted uh, closely together and shorn into a, a living wall, but that plant naturally tops out at six to eight feet. So we aren't going to be fighting its nature. And then the other is a dwarf Mirica serifera, which is uh, bayberry. And the dwarf variety stays much lower, and it also can be shorn uh, to maintain these uh, three to four foot high hedges around the space. But they will be smaller going in than their eventual height. So I, I ask for everyone's patience. 
Um, but it is a it is a funny thing to have it either look perfectly done and mature on opening day or to create a landscape which is our preference that is a living biological system that needs to sustain itself and that needs to be durable and resilient uh, over time you'll notice that the 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 palette is very very simple in this project and the one place that we are uh, con contemplating uh, color is in this preparatory moment, which is really, I think, thanks to George's coaching about assimilating the eyes before going into the chapel. So very restrained color. And so there will be presumably a prescription of upkeep in terms of as they grow and as they develop. Ab absolutely. Um, the, the maintenance of the horticultural landscape is absolutely essential and we've tried to keep in mind the need for um, um, minimizing maintenance while also creating creating a satisfying experience it is always a delicate balance in the public landscape um, i think in this case uh, we have gotten it down to such elemental uh, form and um, uh, very simple plantings, either linear plantings or uh, matrix mass plantings that are all combined. There aren't meticulous beds and drifts that have to be maintained. So we try to keep maintenance in mind, but also the impact of the of the human experience of the garden. Well, I don't know if you're going to like this question, but I would be remiss not to ask it. Uh, given what we've Texas has just been through for the last week in terms of climate, how do you are you concerned about that with regard to what you've just put in the chapel? Well, we have been working in Texas for about eight years, uh, working on uh, Memorial Park, which is a, one of the largest urban parks in the country, and have had to, I mean, we were hired for that project on the heels of four years of devastating drought that had killed the forest. Mm -hmm. um, as we were doing the master planning work and the public input process, we had hurricanes, floods, uh, more drought. Uh, it, it, it is not lost on us that Houston is, is in a vulnerable place to the extremes of climate. So we have uh, carefully taken into consideration the uh, um, extremes of, of those climates. What happened last week is an extreme that I don't think many people uh, could have for, foretold. So. Um, um, I am hopeful that the river birch, which also survive in New York City, um, have done all right through this extreme cold. But yes, climate resilience um, has to be on front and center in your mind when dealing with public horticulture. Absolutely. Last week, though, is an extraordinary exception. One wow. thing I would add to that is um, we were, uh, notwithstanding the circumstances, Last week, we were pleased to learn that the emergency generator, which we put into the newly completed energy house, which is part of the first phase of the project, operated and was able to provide power uh, for the chapel and the welcome house. Um, so uh, it was tested, if you will, under real conditions. But that energy house is part of the resilience of the chapel building as well, because we relocated the HVAC equipment that used to be in a, a pit beside the chapel building to this new building elevated up on the second story of the building and screened, of course, so it's acoustically 
us uh, isolated. But um, that same uh, ethos of resiliency was a key part of, of our work with this infrastructure of the chapel. Um, I guess I'm just going to end. Um, this has been so interesting to hear you from both your practical solutions, uh, your professional judgments, and also how something like the chapel has affected you. Um, a very learned colleague once spoke to me about the power of light in the chapel. And at the time I was stunned at first uh, by his comment because I thought the paintings were about darkness. And that was until I began to work with others and restore them. And Rothko's use of the varied media, with Rothko's use of the varied media, I began to see that they were very much about reflectance and absorbance of light. And it seems to me that each one of you in, in approaching this problem or in approaching the chapel issues have been dealing with that. And so I, I know that that's been difficult, but that, as I said, that was the tightrope that you were all walking. Is there anything you would, general, that you would like to say that I haven't brought up? No, thank you. No. Okay. No, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Well, I, I know that you're gearing up for phase two of opening spaces. Um, and I know that we would all like to hear about that. So maybe, Thomas, would you mind kind of leading us off and sharing some thoughts about that next phase? I'd love to. Thank you, Carol. I'd be, be happy to walk everyone through uh, the site plan of what is to come. And then we'll have Adam walk us through the individual buildings. So if I could have the next slide. Um, this is just a reminder of the incredible celebration of the achievement of phase one. Um, as we turn the page to look toward uh, phase two, I just wanted to, uh, to celebrate in this moment tonight in particular, um, the tremendous achievement that has, has been completed to date. There is a lot more to come. So the next slide, please. Um, here you are seeing the, the full campus plan. And if you will um, um, imagine uh, coming out of the chapel um, and moving to the left on your, on your screen and then turning up, this is the idea of the preparatory garden where we'll have a large rectangular court um, that has uh, movable benches and chairs in it that is a crushed stone field. So the, the impervious path will cross right up to the visitor welcome house, but on either side will be this perfect rectangle of flat, uh, fine crushed stone with a steel edge around it, uh, with mixed plantings in the beds that surround, and then a drift of small flowering trees um, that almost like an orchard or a cloud moving up diagonally across the space will set up the sense of, um, of occupation. So imagine in section the high canopy of oaks that exist and these light ephemerals, uh, this grove of small trees moving through the space. The perimeter plantings will have some purples, pinks, and lavenders, but otherwise be dark green foliage. Again, bringing down the light, allowing your eyes to start to adjust. Moving north into the North Campus, uh, we've already installed a raised table that slows traffic and, and uh, intuitively invites the visitor who has arrived at the Welcome House, had their orientation, to make their way into the South Campus. So I'm doing this a bit in reverse, but it's the order of the day. Um, if you look uh, 
just to the to the north of the welcome house you'll see a small court and to the right of the welcome house a very large court the administration building and just behind that a new parking area for the staff so that's the kind of overall site plan i will bring your attention at this scale of drawing the park land all to the left the chapel and broken obelisk really do now as the only uh, structures in the park they really do resonate as a chapel in the garden and i think that's a very powerful um powerful result of this team's work next please um i went ahead and gave you the names of the different spaces uh next please um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the flow. Um, Adam described the Welcome House as porch-like, and its scale fits into the context of this neighborhood so nicely. And the idea of the, the, this very quick set of diagrams is, is showing the idea of the flow to arrive, that Welcome House catches your eye, you get your orientation, you could arrive from any uh, multiple um, uh, routes. And next, please. Once you get your ticket and orientation, you come into the preparatory garden. You can spend time there and then make your way to the chapel. Next. Uh, into the chapel, spend the time that you wish, come out, circumnavigate the Barnett Newman. Next, please. And then disperse yourself into the garden for this sort of, um, of, of reflection moment. And then of course, next, uh, the idea is that you disperse into the world to take action about the many issues that that the the paintings might have raised, but also the mission of of equity in our world. Next. Um, so we'll look at the north courtyard just one second. Next. And uh, this is a view of the welcome house and this small grove with a bench that is a, a, a sort of space for groups to wait, to mingle, to gather. Uh, also for the operation of the building to the right um, for people to sit in the shade in that little grove. You'll see that the plaza is really intended to be a multi-use space, uh, hosting events and gathering, but with a couple of strategically located trees to provide shade in all, in all um, weather. Next, please. Um, and this is that view looking back from the Welcome House, and you can see with the cottages gone, you are absolutely uh, embraced into the campus experience. You can see the multi-use plaza to the left. Um, the pavement is shifting and changing to give you a sense of dappled light. Uh, the scale and colors of the paving, all with a, a, a warm gray palette, are um, uh, giving you the sense of dappled light and this connectivity uh, to the core of the campus. Next, please. Uh, a quick rendering to show you the experience of being in this preparatory garden. We are to the west of the chapel. We've crossed the street, and this is seeing this border of the low matrix of lavender, purple uh, uh, flowering plants and, um, and green foliage, and this sort of ephemeral orchard grove passing through the space. And this is where you uh, can spend time as you prepare to go uh, inside. The, the hedge to the right is the laurel hedge that we talked about with Carol, uh, that would be this kind of green wall uh, masking 
from uh, much needed uh, utility storage space and the plumbing uh, works for the fountain. Next, please. And this last image is giving you a bit of the idea of the atmosphere at night where there's some lighting around the perimeter, lighting the horticulture, a very low but safe uh, ambience of light with uh, some small ephemeral lights up in those trees, uh, creating a very inviting and safe space, again, to continue the experience uh, into the evening. So with that, um, I will turn it back to Adam, who will walk us through each of the new buildings of phase two. Thank you, Thomas. So um, I'll wrap things up here by talking about, you know, what does it mean to make new architecture for the Rothko Chapel? And it's important to say that this is, as Thomas is describing, as much about the space between as it is the buildings themselves. So the Welcome House is the first element of a new ensemble uh, north of the chapel across Sewell Roth Street that will be a north campus that will consist of a program center with a meeting space, multifunctional meeting space. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then uh, offices and an archive for the chapel. And it's very different than the reflecting pool and the plaza, the courtyard that these buildings face uh, form is a flexible space that's very open and porous to the street. And it's public, it's accessible to the public. So uh, in a way similar to a bit of a different scale than Menil Park, it's a gift to the community and a place where can be a place of respite in a different way than the plaza and reflecting pool are. And it was very important to us in planning the North Campus that we um, mediate with this new, these new buildings between the chapel as this exceptional element uh, and then the scale of the surrounding neighborhood. Uh, could I have the next, please? Um, we, a similar way to uh, Thomas's remarks about the dappled light of the landscape, we thought a lot about the materiality of these buildings, uh, the new program center and the archive and administration building, um, and wanted to connect to the materiality of the existing bungalows, which uh, many of which are owned by the Menil Collection or the Rothko Chapel and have been painted uh, this gray color, which is we call Menil gray with white trim, and that that sort of uh, mediates between the institutional quality of the Menil collection in the Rothko Chapel and the residential scale of the neighborhood and gives a unity to the neighborhood. So these buildings are also clad in wood with two different depths of siding that cast shadows on itself um, and painted that gray, uh, Menil gray color. Next, please. The height of the North Campus is scaled to the parapet height of the chapel building itself, which is about 25 feet. Uh, so again, about the height of a two-story building. Um, and the meeting, uh, meeting space within the program center is the same height within as the uh, walls of the chapel building itself. And you can actually inscribe within the meeting space, uh, the octagonal space of the sanctuary within the square space of the meeting space. So there's a relationship in terms of scale um, between the two. Different than the chapel where daylight comes through a central opening in the meeting house the and the program center, the daylight washes the north wall. You can see the daylight in the, in the skylight in the cross section on the left of this view. If you go to the next, please. 
And this has the effect of pulling the eye into the space, which I'll show an image of in a moment. So this is a, a rendering along Sewell Ross Street, looking toward the uh, Northwest, where you see the Welcome House uh, in the center, the archive and, and administration building on the right, and then beyond the program center. So we pushed the larger scale of the program center uh, back to the back part of the site, partly to screen future buildings that will be on uh, West Alabama, one block north. Next, please. Uh, and this is a view uh, approaching uh, from the chapel toward the north, where you see the program center beyond the welcome house on the left. And that brightness within the space, which draws your eye in even during the day, this space is also screened with uh, what's called a brise soleil, so a series of wooden louvers that block direct sunlight from entering into the program center space, because this is the south-facing facade. And here again, you can see uh, the view of the courtyard as well. But all of this is scaled uh, to, the, to the scale of the neighborhood and trying to be as direct and modest with, with the articulation and, and composition of each of these elements and buildings. Next, please. Within the program center, the meeting uh, space uh, opens to the south and to the view of the chapel beyond and to the plaza in the foreground. And again, it's almost like an interior, interior urban space, if you will, that draws the public in visually and connects the mission of the chapel directly to the outside, literally through the view and the possibility of, of physical movement between the two, depending upon what events are occurring within. Next, please. It's important that this space support a whole range of activities, and we're just showing two here, but um, very much to allow for um, engagement with all members of the community and, and children and young people as well, and families. And so unlike the chapel, which uh, uh, it, you know, has up to now served many of the events that the Rothko Chapel holds, this space will um, allow for greater flexibility uh, and, and not risk damaging the paintings. There will still be uh, events within the chapel, but this space will take some of the pressure off the programming in that space. Next, please. Um, the office and archive building uh, forms the eastern side of this courtyard, and there's a convening space on the upper floor of the building, which is directly aligned with the back of the chapel. So it's another space for smaller groups to gather and meet and, and uh, support again the programming and mission of the chapel and a key element if you go to the next slide please key element of the building is also the archive uh, which will preserve uh, the documentation of the chapel's history it's certainly something that we found to be incredibly uh, important and useful in our understanding of the architecture and mission of the chapel and i think scholars in the future will gain a lot from having this be more um, accessible than it is now so I'll end with one more image, which, uh, well, two more, I suppose. This one, again, is the, um, uh, the roofs on all of these buildings. And you can see the uh, alignment that the uh, office and, and archive building has with the back apse of the chapel. And then the uh, program center in the center to the north part of the site, the courtyard and the welcome house that has just been completed. And the final slide, again, is a view from uh, looking back toward the uh, photograph that Thomas showed earlier and I showed during the day earlier. Um, what we hope to achieve with all of this when phase two is completed is that this will 
further deepen and foster connections between the different people um, and programs that the Rothko Chapel um, supports uh, toward collective action and social justice. So thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful to hear. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with me and the attendees tonight. Uh, we certainly look forward to visiting Houston and seeing your work. Um, in closing, um, I would like to recall Dominique de Manil's thought that the chapel was more than a convenient meeting place, as we've all been saying. She said it was, quote, a place where a great artist turned toward the absolute, had the courage to paint almost nothing, and did it masterfully. It's a place blessed by the many people who gather there to meditate, to find themselves, and to go beyond themselves, end of quote. Thank you for furthering and affecting those aspirations. I very much look forward to following your future work on the chapel project in phase two. You're welcome. Thank you, Carol. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carol. Yeah. And thank you, David, for giving us all this opportunity tonight to flesh out some of the issues and insights that have underscored the vision of opening spaces under your leadership. As we conclude tonight's program, I want to first thank our panelists and moderator, Adam, George, Thomas, and Carol, for sharing your experiences with and hopes for the Opening Spaces Project. Second, I want to invite you to tomorrow's program, the exciting release of Rothko Chapel, an oasis of reflection published by Rizzoli Electa. Commemorating the first monograph on the Rothko Chapel in more than 25 years, the book's contributors speak about the Rothko Chapel's history and how the restoration project came to fruition. Panelists for tomorrow evening's programs are the book's creative team, Stephen Fox, architectural historian and fellow of the Anchorage Foundation of Texas, Paul Hester, architectural photographer, Hester and Hardaway, and Pamela Smart, Associate Professor at Binghamton University. It promises to be a very lively program moderated by Ashley Clemmer, Director of Programs and Community Engagement at the Rothko Chapel. I also want to invite you to the 50th anniversary interface service and community celebration on Sunday afternoon, the culmination of this historic weekend. For more information and to register for these programs, please visit our website, rothkochapel.org. Again, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and we look forward to your participation in the rest of the weekend's programs. Be well, and have a good evening.